Adjunct Professor Bill Madden of QUT uh, is well known to all of us and thanked by all of us for his blog which keeps us up to date daily. Um, this afternoon, Adjunct Professor Madden will consider the disciplinary response when expert evidence departs from what is considered to be widely accepted professional practice. Would you please welcome Adjunct Professor Madden. Um, good afternoon, everyone. I think I'm the last live speaker, so you can be sort of slightly relieved at that until you get to watch the video. This was um, when Tina asked me what I thought I could talk about this afternoon. This was what seemed to me at the time to be a good idea. Um, having done the research, I'm not so sure. There are just, although the concept of trying to find the sort of expert evidence uh, side of you know, sort of people going to court and talking about medical practice might help us a little bit. Um, there are not very many cases, and so I ended up starting off with this somewhat tangential case where a, uh, a surgeon in the United Kingdom who'd done very well doing medical legal opinion writing, apparently earned about 1.4 million pounds, was struck off the register for diverting the funds to his children, all of whom were doctors. Four children were doctors, two in Australia, two in Ireland. Um, he eventually had to pay all the tax on the money. He was fined. He wasn't put in prison. I couldn't find any um, suggestion of what happened to the children who'd received the money, who one would have assumed had some insight into the fact that this was an innovative tax avoidance scheme. <laughs> the first question, I suppose, is um, where does, you know, if we're, if we're looking at expert witnesses giving evidence in court about either innovative practice or otherwise, whose job is it? Is it the job of um, APRA? the disciplinary organisations, the regulatory people, or is it the job of the courts? And the answer seems to be up to a point both. If you go back and look at good medical practice code of conduct, which is a sort of font of all knowledge for looking at disciplinary uh, indicia these days, there are some references in the code to things which are essentially medico-legal. So you can see the text in bold there talks about medico-legal assessments, it talks about reporting, and there are some restrictions on giving opinions which fall within the limits of the practitioner's knowledge, qualifications, etc., etc. The code does not of itself expressly say, and by the way, the evidence you give should be um, legitimate. You, know, you should give correct evidence, that seems to be implied. But in any event, it seems to give APRA an interest in the giving of expert evidence. It doesn't, well, I'll take it back. Um, how that would then fit into some sort of notification, you can look at these later, but I had a look at section 144 of the national law, and just look at those two definitions there, which focus on professional conduct, I suppose, not in an expert evidence setting in court, but they probably capture it. Um, standard which might be reasonably expected of the practitioner by the public, that's a nice broad statement. Um, practice of the health profession, that's a nice broad statement. It seems to me to cover giving evidence in court. When you look at the mandatory reporting provisions, on the other hand, I'm not so sure. Intoxicated by alcohol or drugs, well, unless they're actually drinking whilst in the witness box, and there have been some examples of that, I suppose. Sexual misconduct while giving expert evidence in court seems fundamentally unlikely. Um, but the other issues, placing the public at risk of harm, well, it would be a sort of second level procedure, I suppose. You're not dealing directly with the public at that stage, but that sort of stuff, I suppose, does get publicised in some way. 
Um, significant departure from accepted professional standards, yes, that seems to work, but again, does it place the public at risk of harm? The courts themselves have got an interest in maintaining the veracity of expert evidence, and there are codes. This is an example, the New South Wales Code, although it's been standardised recently around Australia, contrary to the usual trend in Australia of making sure everything is different. Um, and it requires the witness to assist the court impartially. It talks about the expertise of the witness, the qualifications, but again, there's no express focus on the veracity of the evidence. So, like all good lawyers, I thought we should look at some cases. Um, just to sort of see whether, even though there are none that expressly deal with evidence about innovative practice that I could find, although I've thought of one that perhaps somebody will remind me what it's called at the end, I just came across a few sort of interesting examples. This is um, a quote from a decision, a criminal law decision of Shahood, about a report written by a, psychi a psychologist, I think, Dr Jackman. Just read that sentence there from Judge Berman. So he's critical because the doctor has got essentially a word processed precedent report which he's generating in these cases to try and defend people who have been charged with criminal offences. And he's calling into question the veracity of the report because it's got this standard sentence in it. And it's a criticism which was made um, in this case of Chahoud and in the case of Hickson and in the case of Yusuf and in the case of Lee going back to 2008. Now, Dr Jackman's no longer with us, but the court, despite that sort of concern about the veracity of the evidence, did not um, do anything in terms of the doctor's evidence other than to not accept it and in particular didn't refer him to any sort of disciplinary or regulatory body. There have been other examples where the courts have made very critical comments about um, expert witnesses giving evidence. This is a case of Vakuata and Kelly, Vakuata I think, and Kelly, which went all the way to the High Court, where the trial judge, when talking about three particular doc doctors, described them as an unholy trinity. If you're giving evidence in court and the trial judge is describing you as part of an unholy trinity, it's probably not a good sign in terms of the acceptance of your evidence. But the High Court, being very correct about these sorts of things, said, well, trial judge probably shouldn't have done that because it sounds as though he was prejudging the quality of the evidence that he was going to get from those doctors. And so that particular decision, the lower court decision, was overturned and had to go back for a retrial although I did wonder whether the defendant might have used different experts the next time round. Um, there are some examples of disciplinary decisions which focus on evidence given or, if you like, medico-legal processes. So perhaps the best known Australian one is the Mustak decision. Um, a psychiatric test being administered, <coughs> pardon me, essentially in an effort to ascertain whether the person was exaggerating. So the idea was that this test could be applied um, in an in a, you know, objective way to get various answers and you could add up the scores and you could say this person is lying or not. Now, there was some criticism of the use of that test in that form and you can see the criticisms that were summarised on the following um, page. It was 
The test was a North American test. It hadn't been adjusted for the Australian population. Um, it was being used for a medico-legal assessment. That wasn't what it was designed for. Basically, it wasn't built for the task to which it was being put. And the expert witness was, if you like, giving his evidence some pretense of um, scientific accuracy, the science part again, when it really wasn't there. He was initially uh, deregistered for six months because of that, although there were a series of later decisions where he appealed various aspects of the decision. If we jump, that was um, right back in, uh, when was it, 2004. So if we jump right forward in time to last year, <coughs> there was a little example in this decision involving Eastwood and the psychology board. Again, a report writing case, not expressly for a court. This isn't somebody standing in the witness box. This is someone writing a report for Centrelink. But it's against the background of a family law dispute between a husband and a wife. And he, uh, in the report, talked about something called parental alienation syndrome. Now, the trouble with that was that according to the DSM-4, five, it says there, might have been five, manual, that was not a recognised um, psychiatric condition. And so you've seen in this case an example where A, the, the psychologist had become an advocate for the client's cause. The report was very emotive in a number of different ways. But the criticism was that the uh, evidence, if you like, wasn't scientifically appropriate. The opinion was flawed in that way. Now, that's some, something that you don't often see, um, in the Australian setting at least. The biggest example, and perhaps the best example that we've seen in recent times, is an English decision involving a Dr Wayney Squire. Now, this ties in a bit to the um, cases which are called the shaken baby cases. Does everyone have a general idea about that? Small children, they're apparently shaken by an angry parent. They end up with a particular pattern of injury, including retinal damage, bleeding in the brain, some spinal bleeding, those sorts of things. But no external visible injury. So these things are often only apparent on autopsy, and they're used in the context of uh, prosecution of whoever it happens to have been that's shaken the child as evidence of often a manslaughter charge, something in that nature. Now, Dr Squire um, had been initially giving evidence in those cases on behalf of the prosecution, but over time took the view that the theory behind the shaken baby cases and this triad of symptoms which would appear was just not right. She gave evidence in a lot of cases she wrote articles. There's a very long article in a peer-reviewed publication. I, in fact, much to my surprise, ended up using it in a coroner's uh, decision in Australia about six months before this all happened. Um, the approach taken by the regular, regulatory authority for her was actually really quite a strong approach. And when she first came before the Medical Practitioners Tribunal, um, the ruling against her because of the, what was said to be poor quality of her evidence was such that she could no longer practice medicine full stop. That went on appeal to the um, England Wales High Court, uh, as you can see here in the summary, and I'm happy to distribute the notes about this later if people want to read it. But see the three criticisms down the bottom of the slide there, if you could just read those. 
So these are criticisms which go really to the quality of her evidence. And the High Court, although going through the medical tribunal, uh, medical practitioners tribunal decision in a lot of detail and chopping and changing various things, <coughs> said that although she wasn't expressly being dishonest, the evidence was inaccurate and they let her back into clinical practice, but she wasn't allowed to give evidence in court proceedings for another uh, three years. And I think that's where it ended up. I've tried to find out whether there was a further appeal after that. I don't know if anyone knows whether there was. I don't think there was. I think that was how it ended. Um, there are some comments there about the importance of the objectivity and integrity of doctors who act as expert witnesses. The last decision I wanted to touch on was an Australian decision which I just thought was interesting because it, at the time it generated a certain amount of publicity but it didn't really go anywhere, I think, and that was the Parenzi decision. This was a gentleman who'd been charged with having um, unprotected sex with three women knowing that he was HIV positive. And when he was first tried, various things were contested, but he conceded at the, at the first trial that he didn't have, sorry, that he had HIV and that uh, this could have been passed on to these women. Um, he subsequently, having been convicted, lodged an appeal. And on his appeal, he sought to reopen his case so as to argue based on some evidence which he'd found in the meantime, which essentially said that the HIV virus had never been isolated. In other words, it didn't exist as a separate virus. It couldn't be demonstrated that it was transmissible through sexual intercourse and that there was no evidence that AIDS, HIV, was caused by a unique infectious agent. Now, this was not, as you can imagine, a mainstream opinion in Australian medicine in 2007, and it still isn't today. But the experts in this case um, ultimately were these two people here, Ms Papadopoulos, Eopoulos, I think, and a Dr Turner, and they gave evidence in that case. <coughs> Difficult issue for the judge. The, the, the rehearing on this issue took 17 days. And so the judge had to grapple with this evidence and the veracity of this evidence given by these two people who were, if you like, promoting what you might call an innovative theory of HIV disease, or alternatively just calling into question the underpinnings of the recognised science. Um, uh, the first person was a lady who had a degree in nuclear physics from the University of Bucharest in 1960. Um, and Dr Turner, Valentin Turner, who by the way is still in practice as a medical practitioner in Western Australia, I checked last week, had medical degrees, Bachelor of Med, Bachelor of Surgery, all those sorts of things. Um, the judge, after 17 days of evidence, rejected that on the grounds of um, expertise because, for example, Dr Turner wasn't a virologist. He didn't have expertise in those areas that he was trying to give evidence on. And the first person um, in specialising in nuclear physics didn't seem to really tie into HIV science at all. What was interesting, of course, at the end of all of that was, again, nothing, the, nothing seemed to come out of in the court setting, in the civil court setting, the evidence given by those witnesses. There was no method or attempt or process by which the court could somehow, uh, if you like, penalise or, or deal with that evidence which could be seen as quite dubious evidence and could be seen as perhaps being a, a danger to the public if it was um, 
communicated around the community as being somehow truthful because it was in a court case. And as best I can tell, unless someone can correct me, nothing happened to Dr Turner. And so there was no disciplinary action taken against him by what would have then been, I suppose, um, the Medical Board of West Australia before APRA came into existence. Now, where does that take us, just to wrap up? Um, it struck me, having looked at all of this, that A, none of them are really cases about innovation. But there is scope for witnesses to um, influence the outcome of court proceedings and, I suppose, knowledge more broadly, such as the situation in England with Dr Squire about conditions. There's been some research done in Australia by Genevieve Grant and David Studdett, which draws attention to the fact that a relatively small number of witnesses give evidence in a lot of cases. So one witness can have quite a big influence, and that certainly was the case with Dr Squire. Um, the medical board, in its most recent report, in a note, says that it re regularly receives notifications about medical practitioners who perform medico-legal or third-party assessments. And you can see what they've said there um, about the number of those, the fact that it's increasing, and that they may decide to do something, but generally not on the basis of a single complaint. And Avant, the largest insurer in Australia for medical indemnity, says they've seen a recent increase in complaints in that area as well. So that area, I'm talking about medical legal assessments feeding into expert opinion evidence. Very small number of decisions, and apparently none, that expressly deal with innovative um, medical practice so far that I can find, except to say I'd forgotten the name of the case, but there was one where a cosmetic surgeon was doing, offered, was approached by a woman to have, I think, a facelift procedure, and then, although she didn't ask for it, he pointed out that she also needed a breast uplift procedure, which was very kind of him. Was it Dr Tiong? And he was doing the um, breast thread procedure, I think, at the time. And that was an innovative procedure. He was introducing it into Australia, and he therefore offered to do it on a discount rate or something like and that. Yeah. I rang her up at home. It's, it's, yeah, yeah. Well, that's good doctor-patient service, isn't it? You, you get a call from your doctor at home saying, I, have I got a deal for you? Uh, anyway, so I should have put that in my slides as well because that sort of did tie into what was at the time an innovative practice in Australia because the, um, it hadn't been done before. Yeah. Now... I think, if I remember rightly, that the criticism of him was directed at the way he dealt with the doctor-patient interaction. I don't know that he was bluntly criticised for trying to promote an innovative practice as such. He was bluntly, yep. bluntly criticised for um, soliciting. Yeah. Yeah, no, well, I'm sorry I couldn't remember it when I was putting the slides together. Um, so my four or five sort of concluding points before we wrap up, I suppose, is that despite the scope for court responses to dubious expert evidence, whether it's about innovation or otherwise, the courts don't seem all that keen to get involved. They say, we've listened to this witness, we don't like them, we don't believe them, we will disregard them, but that sort of stops there. And even if there are multiple criticisms of witnesses, 
suggesting that they're just not good witnesses or that they're saying things which are inappropriate, the courts don't seem to have any great appetite to do anything about it. And so it seems to me that for the in the disciplinary arena, that's probably the place we need to turn to do something about those problems in that expert witness arena. There is a danger in that because in America, there have been some attempts on the parts of some of the colleges to stop witnesses giving evidence um, in medical negligence litigation critical of other members of the college. So you've got to be a bit careful of that balancing exercise there. There seems to have been some suggestion of increases in complaints of the number of people in this area, expert witnesses, but there's only a handful of decisions. And whether that's the beginning of a trend, um, I suppose we'll need to ask the medical board that in another couple of years' time. Um, but at the moment, there are no examples and probably would seem unlikely that there was one on the horizon. The case that I think both Cameron and Bernadette might have mentioned, the Drysdale inquest, that particular doctor who was a cosmetic surgeon using stem cell implants before he progressed to treating arthritis with stem cell implants and then treating dementia with stem cell implants, is still practising in Western Sydney doing the cosmetic surgery stem cell implants, but he has conditions on his registration um, which prevent him treating dementia, I think, at the moment. Thank you. Just before we uh, have the video from Dr Case, we might have some questions of our panel to uh, take advantage of the fact that they're all still with us. So, Oh, well, I'm, I, you're still with us and you can't get out. Doctor? I've just got several, a couple of quick questions about the last case that you mentioned of Paranenzi, the South Australian one. Uh, how did the complaint or complaints come about in that case? I'm sorry, how um, did the complaint or complaints come about in that particular case? And secondly, at what stage of the proceedings did the issue as to the expertise or otherwise of those witnesses become apparent? Because it seems to me that either the tribunal or judge wasn't doing its duty at the commencement of the proceedings or when those witnesses were called as to whether there was any issue as to their expertise um, or whether they were proffered as experts and nobody objected to them or what was the circumstance around that? The, I don't think there Thank were you. any express complaints as such to any disciplinary bodies. The, the first um, person was not a medical practitioner and so there probably is no disciplinary mechanism that could be pursued. The medical practitioner was. It came up because the man had been convicted. He sought to overturn his conviction on the basis of new evidence. These two people were the new evidence. <coughs> Pardon me. And the judge basically spent 17 days listening to them and other evidence from other witnesses on behalf of the prosecution and then basically refused to um, accept any of their evidence on the, on the grounds that the, they didn't have appropriate expertise, so he dealt with that and also on the grounds of lack of what, what was called in the, in the decision cogency, which is just a polite way of saying, I've looked at all the science and I've listened to what you two have got to say and it doesn't seem to match. 
So that's what the judge did, but it just took 17 days to do it.